Phoenix Police Department and the County Attorney's Office concocted a literal plan to frame protesters. A whole made up scheme saying that these individuals were part of a gang that was more dangerous than the Bloods and the Crips. When I learned that there were protesters charged as gang members, I pretty much dropped everything I was doing and I spent the next three months investigating and it was far worse than I ever could have imagined. That was Dave Biscabang, Chief Investigative Reporter for Phoenix, Arizona's ABC 15. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I am Abby Wright. I run the prizes program at Columbia Journalism School. I'm joined today as always by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, for a conversation about really one of our favorite local reporters, Dave Biscabang. Yes, I fondly and admiringly like to call him the Energizer Bunny. And that's just the way he is in his reporting and in his conversations. He's so committed and so passionate he just keeps going and going and going. And his stories are so remarkable. These two pieces that he just won for really blew our judges away. And he's no stranger to DuPont. I mean, he, let's see, he won in 2018. He was a finalist in 2021. And then, of course, this past win. So we've all been hearing a lot about Arizona these days with election deniers, and it just seems to be a stage for a lot of activity and a a place where there's a real need for local reporters. Yeah, Phoenix is very, very lucky to have him. Uh, In this interview, we talk about the two pieces that were sort of combined by the judges. They both dealt with social justice issues, uh, police malfeasance, the criminal justice system. And the first one is called Politically Charged. And that's the one in which Phoenix police tried to frame mostly peaceful protesters and branded them dangerous gang members, more dangerous than the Bloods and the Crips, which left them vulnerable to really serious criminal charges. And the other winning series uh, is called Full Disclosure, in which Dave investigates how officers who've been placed on Arizona's Brady list, and that's something that Dave will explain right off the bat in this interview, how people who are on this Brady list, they still remain on police forces. And most importantly, for the purposes of this story, they're able to testify against defendants in court. And the fact that they're known liars is not revealed. You know, I will say I learned so much in my job. And this series in particular really taught me so much about how these databases are available, that you can track police records, mm-hmm. and how or you should be able or to. Or you should be able to. Right. You should be able to track them. So that just shows that Dave, in addition to being an amazing doorstopper and man on the street interviewer, also does a lot of deep dives with data reporting too. Over years, I think stories kind of grow out of other stories and continue on. That's why we keep seeing him back year after year. All right, well, let's get to our conversation with Arizona ABC 15's Dave Biscabing. It's an edited version of our conversation. Thanks for making time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Can you sum up for us just the cocktail napkin version? What are these two series about? 
while they're about two separate topics, they're really about the inability of our law enforcement here in Arizona to hold themselves accountable and respect people's constitutional rights. The Phoenix Police Department and the County Attorney's Office are both central figures in both of these series, and they just don't respect people's rights either in criminal cases or their right to speak out about the problems that they see. And, and we think that that's extremely troubling. So full disclosure was really about Arizona's broken Brady list system. Under the constitution, under Brady v. Maryland, you are supposed to turn over evidence of an officer's past crimes, lies, integrity concerns, so that the jury or the judge knows about the credibility of those officers in these criminal cases. That doesn't happen a lot of times. And the whole system used to track these officers is broken. That's what we focused on. And because it was so broken, we decided, you know what, we need to fix it. So we did something that's never been done anywhere before. We put together a comprehensive, 100% accurate Brady list of every officer that belongs on those lists across Arizona. And we published it. Now, politically charged, that is about freedom of speech. It's about protests. Throughout 2020, obviously, after George Floyd's murder, there was a reckoning for police accountability. People were speaking out, and Phoenix was no different. And we had dozens of people who were some of the most vocal and active going out there protesting routinely and repeatedly. Well, Phoenix got sick of it. So they, with the county attorney's office, concocted a literal plan to frame protesters. They invented a fake game. Okay, so these protesters would chant many things, Black Lives Matters, uh, no justice, no peace. And one of them is a phrase you'll hear anywhere, all cops are bastards, right? So what did the Phoenix Police Department and the county attorney's office do? They came together and say, hey, you know what? Let's say they're the all cops are bastards game, ACAB. And they concocted a whole made up scheme saying that these individuals were part of a gang that was more dangerous than the Bloods and the Crips. And it was astounding. And when we found out about this, when I learned that there were protesters charged as gang members, I pretty much dropped everything I was doing. And I spent the next three months investigating because it seemed so outlandish and it was far worse than I ever could have imagined. Wow. Thank you. Dave, you already touched on this, but help people understand the Brady list. Does it exist everywhere? Is it specific to where you are? It does exist everywhere or it's supposed to, but under a different name perhaps. So in Arizona, the, the criminal law procedures, it's called Rule 15 list, the Brady list. It's from a case called Brady v. Maryland, and it's an entirely voluntary process, which means it's abused like crazy. But the point is, yes, it should exist, at least in some form, everywhere. And is that the kind of list that a taxpaying citizen would normally have access to? It depends on your state, right? Public record laws are different everywhere. In Arizona, we have fairly good public record laws. So it is public record. That doesn't mean if you're a member of the public and you ask for it, they're not going to lie to you or tell you that you can't get it or delay you or give you excuses. But yes, you can get it. And that's kind of what makes this whole idea of this the system being broken, these kind of officers' names not being turned over to defense attorneys and defendants in cases kind of so surprising. So um, you used one particular case as an example and you followed it and just kept unfolding in more and more outrageous ways. But can you talk us through that a little bit? It was the story of Francis. It was worse than a nightmare. This is Francis Salazar. Her case began in Phoenix in 2013. Francis and a friend pulled over. When the officer searched the car, he found a crack pipe that he claimed was wedged down between a seat and the center console. The officer was Phoenix PD's Anthony Armour. In court, he gave damning testimony. She admitted that the pipe with the crack cocaine in it was hers. Yes. Was the pipe yours? No. 
Did you admit to him that the fire I was did yours? not. So he lied. He lied. And so he says that Francis admitted to having it. She says that didn't happen. He's not wearing body camera. He doesn't even impound it. And so they go all the way to trial. And she's got, I think, a previous drug conviction in her past. She had been clean, she says, for years leading up to this. And so she was facing considerable prison time. So she's going to fight for her freedom because even a plea deal in Arizona and Maricopa County is very strict um, sentencing guidelines for drugs. She was going to go away for years. So she was like, no, I got to fight this. I'm innocent. I didn't do this. And so they go to trial. They even bring in the owner of the car and he admits on the stand at the risk of his own freedom saying, no, it was mine. It was not hers. But the prosecution puts this officer on the stand, says, who are you going to believe? Officer Armour is the police officer. He wouldn't have a reason to build a case against Jennifer against. The defendant wants you to believe that she's the subject of some conspiracy to convict her. That's just not the case. You have an officer who got on the stand and told you what? I'm a predator, and she said, I'll take responsibility for her. For it. That's it. End of inquiry. The problem is that whole time. For a whole year leading up to that trial, they knew that that officer had been caught lying in the past in another case. And that case he lied about falsely uh, made a probable cause to enter a woman's apartment. He inappropriately arrested her. And then when a sergeant came to the scene to realize that there was a problem in this case, he says, you need to let her go. He lies to his supervisor and says, no, sure, I'll let her go, but then takes her and books her into jail anyway, right? So he gets suspended. So not only is he lying about probable cause, he's lying in his reports, documenting the arrest. Then he lies to his supervisor about what happened. That should have been disclosed, and it wasn't. Phoenix didn't turn it over to the county attorney's office for like a year when she was convicted. They continued to sit on it. So she, she sat in prison for two years until her defense attorney working on an appeal. They go back and they check the, the docket and find out that the county attorney's office had quietly filed a notice saying, oh, there was some exculpatory evidence, but they didn't notify anybody. So they just slipped it into the file and just were like, oh, yep, we did our duty, but they didn't, right? And then it all gets thrown out because the county attorney's office is like, well, we can't have a he said, she said case when the he, the officer, is a documented liar who's falsely arrested women before and even lied to his department about it. Then we continue to do more investigating about this officer. We found that he's been credibly accused of sexual assault multiple times, including a member of his own police department. And they knew about that too. All that brushed aside. So you're saying that uh, it was a he said, she said, and the he said was a cop. And so right. therefore the jury was going to put more weight on his testimony. And in this case, because he's on the Brady list, he shouldn't. Was there any other evidence besides his testimony? No. It was really what he said versus her, her defense. That was it. She didn't testify, obviously, but she had people testify on her behalf and um, they brought him up. And the closing argument is he's an officer. That's it. End of inquiry, end of story. He has no incentive to lie. I mean, that's the level of evidence that we use to convict a lot of people, not just in Arizona, but in America, particularly in drug crimes, which are the majority of crimes that people are convicted for in America. And it often is just to an officer's work. Right. So on full disclosure, you say at the start of the series that the impetus for your investigation came in the wake of George Floyd's murder. But was any of your reporting, were you already working on this before May of 2020? Yes and no. We touched on the George Floyd stuff because there was a clamoring for police accountability. 
And full disclosure obviously is an extreme example of that. We took and created the database of officers with serious misconduct in their past. And we published it for anyone to see, right? We saw that as an opportunity to really do something deep and big when the public's attention was there and it was ripe for the kind of, of moment to, to express something like this. My actual interest in Brady, in the Brady List problems really goes back about 2011 or 12, doing some other police related reporting. I started you know, noticing certain officers on the Brady List and it just, it got it on my radar and thinking about, well, if they're on the Brady List, why are they still officers? Have they been reported to the state police board? You know, lying is supposed to almost be like a revocation issue. So how do we have so many lying officers still in the force. So that kind of got it in my mind. And then it was another story. And it was this Glendale officer who tased a man in the groin in which he lied about the nature of the traffic stop. Officer Matthew Schneider delivered the final taste to his testicles as he was handcuffed, laying face down on the blacktop on a 108 degree day. But for nearly two years, Glendale police were able to keep it all quiet in-house. And when it comes to Officer Schneider, Glendale's top arrest leader for years, the department even minimized and then covered up the fact. Officer Schneider pulled the car over for an alleged blinker violation he never saw. Surveillance video proved it clearly without question. Schneider even admitted it during an internal investigation. Explain to me how the signal, how you could have seen the signal from where you're at. The angle looks horrible, I'm not gonna lie. Now, obviously, watching this, yeah, it's not possible that I saw the, the violation. And I'm like, okay, right. this guy's clearly gotta be on the Brady list. He wasn't, still isn't, but the fact that he never was for this incident just showed me, okay, this is clearly broken. And so that, that, was, the, that was the trigger when it was, no longer in the back of my mind is something to keep an eye on. So this is something we need to act on and we need to address. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about politically charged. This was a protest. Yeah, it was a protest on October 17th is the primary protest we focused on. It was 18 people. They uh, marched. Um, they put out a flyer saying, hey, we're going to march in the streets. They said what they're doing. They, they marched for about 20 minutes. Police let them march the entire times in the street. I think the, op, the number of officers that outnumbered the protesters three or four to one, and uh, which just shows you how um, worried they are about protesting. And just for kind of context, downtown Phoenix, even during the busiest of times, is not very crowded. It's not like New York. It's not like Chicago, downtown Chicago. It's not right. how it is, right? And, and, and on top of that, it was a pandemic and there was a ton of construction going on, as you can see from the video. There's no one down there. Okay, you, you can go walk in the street, you, no car's gonna have a problem with you. So it's not like they're, they're disrupting thousands, tens of thousands of people, they're disrupting no one. Um, so they're, they're marching down the street and the police follow them all the way to the corner. They get into um, a huddle and they're all arrested. In fact, they're, they're huddling at the end is a very passive, you know, like giving up. Well, then we find out that they concocted this plan to, oh, let's say they're a gang and then we'll hit them with gang charges. That's what they did. They were waiting for an opportunity. And this was the first real opportunity where they could go in and they could say, we're going to try and, and get him as a syndicate or a gang and shut them down for good. And therefore, they're uh, susceptible to gang charges. Yeah. The gang laws in Arizona are really broad. In order to charge someone as a gang member in Arizona, you need just two of seven very broad criteria. And that can be colors. It can be uh, phrasing. It can be um, similar clothing. 
It can be a proclamation. I mean, basically, if, if they wanted to, they could say you as an employee of Columbia University because you have a school color and you belong to the same group that you were a gang member. That, that's really all it takes. It gives them a lot of discretion. So they looked at this group and they said, you know what? Most of them were wearing black when they were marching. They were carrying umbrellas because they use the umbrellas to block them from all the, the pepper spray. And so that counter protesters don't dox them. And because mm-hmm. they were chanting similar things, they said, oh, those are three criteria. They're a gang. But then they took it further. They just didn't say they were a gang. They went in front of a grand jury, which is supposed to be confidential, but we got the transcript. You know, they sat down and the prosecutor and the, the main officer, they testified under oath that this group was like the Bloods and the Crips, the Mexican Mafia and the Hells Angels. They claim the group is a gang, a gang officials call ACAB, specifically because they chant, all cops are bastards. I watched the video, weren't they, didn't they say other things during that, during the time they were walking down the street? I'm sure they did. Did you hear them say Black Lives Matter? Not personally, no. Black Lives Matter! Okay, well did you listen, watch the video with sound on it? Yes. It was all entirely made up. They just made it up. And you might, there's, it's, none of it's even based in fact. In fact, after our stories, a new prosecutor got assigned, someone who actually handled the case with ethics, which was refreshing to see. And he's like, I've looked at all the, the photos of their fingernails when they're arrested in handcuffs. None of them have sharpened fingernails. Where did you get that from? And then the umbrellas, none of them were sharpened. It's just all made up. Like, like literally, like it's almost like they're in a comic book. It's one of the most astounding things I've seen. I mean. I, Seeing officers lie in reports or stretching the truth, that's not new. But to entirely make something up completely and unequivocally, it just, that was, that, that was really disturbing. It really raises a lot of questions about what else are said in grand juries that we as the public never, ever, ever get to see. So Dave, in both of these series, you featured unbelievable body cam footage and other surveillance footage. How did you guys get your hands on that stuff? Obviously, we do a lot of public records requests for us, right? But by and large, the evidence that we got, we obtained through, honestly, a decade or more of just really aggressive reporting. We've earned a lot of trust in our community from the public. People are willing to share stuff with us, knowing that if they're taking a risk by sending us information that we're going to treat it carefully, we're going to give it careful consideration, and defense attorneys who couldn't even get in trouble with the courts in some cases. There are ethical guidelines for what you can release in cases and before trials, and yet they take those risks to provide us body cameras. So in a lot of cases, there's a lot of actually just shoe leather journalism, making a ton of calls, getting in front of people, letting them know how serious we are looking at these issues, and them saying, okay, here, we're going to give you our discovery. You can look through it, no restrictions, because that would be a, a deal breaker for me. I need to see it all. So I know I'm not being steered one way or the other and look at it. And then once I've looked at it, start to vet, okay, is there anything that I've been missing, right? Do some public records requests to see if that's the case. But really, when it comes to the video, the body camera footage that you saw, that was provided by the impacted people who trusted us because we showed them how serious we are about this issue. And it's because of all of our past reporting. How, when it comes to the Brady list, the list itself was done through public records requests. So, you know, this body cam footage, it's so visceral. It's like eyewitness testimony. How has the introduction of body cam footage changed your game? In both full disclosure and and specifically in politically charged, I think what it does is you can show the public what happened with 
the police departments, the state's own evidence, okay? Like this isn't video that we created. We're not putting B-roll over our words. It takes you there. So it gives the public, I think, a, an extreme understanding and a much clearer vision of what exactly transpired and how, and it makes the reporting that much more bulletproof. Because what is a, a police department or county attorney's office going to say, Dave, you did an hour-long documentary on protest cases. You took things out of context. And they don't say that, because how could they? Because it'd be like, no, here's all of it. This is your evidence. The other benefit is, in TV, time is always a consideration. When you take someone to the scene, you take someone into an incident, you can hold their attention. And the amount of information you can relay, sprinkling in facts, context, information gets to be, I think, a lot easier. You draw people in and you draw them in for longer. Right. So speaking of this unbelievable body cam footage and the violent, inappropriate, frankly, illegal things that it captures, when you and your team are, are scrolling through all of this material, does any of it ever get to you? I mean, how do you react when you see that kind of malfeasance, violence? It, you know, it's kind of sad to say that, you know, you get numbed to it. What does affect me, though, is the people and how they're affected. How someone who maybe should have got a misdemeanor charge, were they, were they marching in the street? Did some tip over cones and politically charged? Yeah. Do you want to hit them with disorderly conduct and they get, uh, you know, a fine and, um, you know, that's it? Okay. You know, what, what's the story there for me? Nothing, right? But when you go then and you label them as gang members, you know, I'm not sure that those arrests will ever be wiped from their record. Some of them have lost housing, some of that. So, so that's what bothers me. It's to see how the people that, that did the abusing can do it and, and, and not face the consequences and, 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 and even still make excuses. And then on the other end, to have people who, who live it and still will have to live it forever. I think that's what gets, gets, gets to me. It's so interesting because I was just about to ask you a question about how important is it to have a human story in these investigations that have data, that have you know context, that have lots of legalese? How important is the human story? I, I think I get these massive issues that identify and I'm thinking about, okay, how are we going to tell these stories, right? I spend so much thought thinking about what are the what are representative cases that clearly highlight these individual problems? Or are there cases that I look at and then see what problems do those clearly highlight? It's kind of, you know, you can go at it both ways. You have to show how this actually impacts someone, something, the world. And so when it comes to full disclosure, I, I think that there's power. We did individualized reports of individual problems. And to find those people, I thought it was the most important thing. That's really how you you drive the point home because the Brady list is like this, it's a list, right? It's, it's names on the page. How, how do you bring that to real life? It's showing someone like Francis, she served two years in prison. I think she got a six year sentence. Did that woman need to be in prison for six years? That grandmother? You know, as we watch these stories, as the jury watched these stories, there was a great a sense of outrage and a response. What kind of response did you get from the public from these stories? The response that I've gotten related to stories like this, particularly law enforcement related accountability stories has really shifted, I think, in the last decade that I've seen here. 10 years ago, I think I would get far more negative reaction from the public than positive. I think it is entirely flipped. In fact, for full disclosure and politically charged, I would say that the amount of negative uh, messages I got for both combined is probably less than a dozen. And you're talking about the amount that you got positive, a dozens. And so I was very surprised at the reception. And I think that kind of speaks to the power of the reporting and the significance and the legitimacy of the issues that we exposed that 
there was such a positive reaction. We got a lot of emails from people saying, this opened my eyes. I got emails from assistant chiefs in moderately sized police departments saying, we need to look at our Brady procedures a little better because this opened my eyes. And then I, I will leave you with this. It's just an interesting little anecdotal thing. There was an officer, it's not on the Brady list, but he was very upset about the hour that we aired on the Brady list store. And he kept sending me what he thought was anonymous emails um, asking if there should be a, a list of bad journalists. And then he would find these articles from across the world. I think there's some journalists in Australia arrested for some sex crime. He goes like, why don't you do a story about him? Are you all sex crazed lunatics? And he says, I hope you never need police help. And I'm like, all right, so let me just Google this email address, see if anything pops up. Well, it was an email address that shows up. So then I'm like, oh, look, there's a name. So I Google the name. He's the public information officer for the Gilbert Police Department. And I'm like, oh, look, he's sending me what he thinks anonymous emails, essentially sending me bail threats, hoping I never need police help. So, you know, we are a journalism school and we have a couple of DuPont fellows who are students here. They asked a lot of questions about how do you get the kind of access that you get? How do you get it to the police? What kind of relationship and source development goes into the level of access that you got? I think a lot of the questions that I get from students, it has to do with how do you get these story ideas, right? It's just being persistent and serious. So, so the, the, the politically charged is a perfect example, okay? In October last year, protesters got charged as a criminal street gang, okay? So, so I heard about it, of course, from a, a source. A defense attorney told me and said, hey, I have a client who's getting charged as a gang member for protesting. That's nuts. A couple outlets did, did a, an initial story about it, right? It wasn't some mystery, but I'm like, there's clearly a larger problem here. So I dug into that. I made calls. I went and visited people. I dug through records. I started asking through to look through video. And it's not like I call someone and someone's like, hey, here's all my stuff right away. It takes time. I almost never wait for a tip to look at. I'm constantly looking at what's happening in the news. Does something that's already a problem, something that's already being reported, need more scrutiny? That's how I identify these big projects. And sometimes that's kind of the sad state of, of where we are sometimes in the news is that we're we're burning things so quickly that we don't take a breath and look and be like, whoa, did we ever follow up on that? Because we should. Thank you so much for doing this and congratulations again to you, you and so your whole team. Yeah, thank you so much. It's just an incredible honor. So we're very excited. Thank you. Since we recorded that conversation, there have been some new developments in both of these series. First, this summer, a federal judge refused to toss out a lawsuit that was filed by over 100 protesters against the Phoenix Police Department. And then, based on Dave's investigation, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office fired the prosecutor who played a lead role in some of those protest cases that were later dismissed. And the DOJ's investigation into the Phoenix PD is ongoing. Right. And then with regards to Dave's full disclosure series, as of this summer, ABC 15 counted 1,800 police officers on the Brady list, 400 more than when Dave originally reported the story, which just might be an indicator of some increased accountability. And that is the power of journalism and the power of Dave Biscoving. He's a reminder of why local reporting is so critical and the incredible impact that a local reporter can have for their community. This episode of On Assignment was produced by Emily Russell. Until next time.